This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Well, you get busy doing things around the holiday season, and uh, I guess the news uh, that broke actually on Saturday uh, may have come as a bit of a surprise to some folks uh, because uh, the jury was out in the uh, Laura Babcock murder trial, but they did render a judgment and a, uh, a verdict uh, that broke, of course, late Saturday afternoon. Uh, murder, first-degree murder convictions uh, for both uh, Della Millard and Mark Smitch in the uh, the death of Laura Babcock. And uh, it was a uh, very emotional time, obviously, through the course of this trial, as it was with the Bosma trial. And uh, Laura Babcock's father, uh, Clayton Babcock, spoke to the media just after the verdict was rendered. Today's verdict really brings us little joy. The loss of Laura is no less painful today than when it was realized five years ago. Like any parent that loses a child, we can only move forward with the thoughts of what might have been. You also know about the evil beings that took her life, and if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. Well, uh, the hope of a lot of people, I would imagine, uh, with the uh, verdict rendered in the Babcock murder trial. Joining us to talk about this is Alex Pearson. She's the host of On Point with Alex Pearson, which is uh, heard uh, every weeknight on the Global News Network. You hear it uh, between 8 and 10 right here on 900 CHML. Alex, uh, first of all, thanks for, uh, for the time today. It's great to have you back on the show. Nice to be back, Bill, although I don't like the circumstances. No, it's uh, it's like deja vu all over again, of course. Uh, no, yeah. not, not the, the trial is over and the, the, the verdict has been rendered. Uh, we can connect some dots between what happened in the Bosma trial, which you covered so well for us here at CHML, and this Babcock uh, trial, and the the verdict, of course, in both uh, were uh, convictions uh, for Mark Smitch and uh, for Adele and Millard. Uh, first of all, I, I assume you're not surprised by the verdict? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I, they took the right amount of time to deliberate. They obviously uh, were thoughtful about it. But uh, no, I wasn't surprised at all that it came back. In fact, I thought they might come back Friday, and then um, it made sense to me Saturday afternoon. You know, if they would have slept on it, gone through it just a couple more hours in the morning, and then you know, given their decision. But yeah, it's uh, it's over. And um, I hope, Bill, that this gives the Babcock family the much needed closure that they need. Because in a lot of ways, Laura Babcock is the forgotten one. And it's unfortunate because during the Tim Bosma matter, we, we were not allowed to talk about her. We were, she, she, was, she just did not exist. And that was to preserve the integrity of her trial and Tim Bosma's trial. And so we couldn't talk about her. We couldn't talk about all the awful things we knew. And uh, that's what made it so hard to cover technically. Um, but for her family to have to live day in, day out thinking, geez, does anyone care about Laura? I hope now that they get the closure they need because people did care about her. Certainly Sean Lerner, her, boy, her ex-boyfriend, who I think is an unsung hero in this. Who really kind of shed light on this. Uh, and and we got some evidence pushed, of that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We pushed the, the police to please open this case. And, and he was ignored. And uh, I think there's a lot of questions we can ask of the investigation as to why was it that it was only because um, of the Tim Bosma matter that they started to really look into the other um, deaths, be it Wayne Millard or Laura Babcock. But, you know, if it weren't for him really pushing to say, hey, there's something going on here, you know, maybe they we could have avoided to have Tim Bosma killed. I, we'll never know. That's the problem. We'll just never know. I know, but but you know this discussion that we can now have about these two yeah. trials. Uh, yeah. I, I think what it does is it underscores the the frustration. I mean, you've been covering trials such as this for many many years, and and we all get about the intricacies of this and the legalities that uh, what you can and cannot say in trial situations. But as you mentioned during the the Bosma trial, we weren't allowed to even mention the Laura Babcock trial, or the name okay. uh, with the charges or what was going on. But nope. conversely, in the Babcock trial, the the the, the Tim Bosma situation. Yeah. was per, uh, just shoved to the side. There's no mention yeah. of that. And yeah. and, and you, you, you and I are watching this from afar thinking, boy, I wish the jury could talk about this. I wish they knew <laughs> about this because that ties into this, et cetera. And there's a, there's a you, you know, our minds are, are thinking, boy, look at the, knew. yeah, the, look yeah. at the connection here with the incinerator and everything else, that there's a pattern here, people. But they, yep. they thankfully came to the right decision anyway. But and nonetheless, way, it's we, frustrating. We tell you, yeah, well, it is. And, and uh, talking to a colleague of mine, I have a couple of colleagues that covered this. Um, when the jury were talking with, you know, the judgment about, you know, recommendations for sentencing, when they heard the judge say, you know, these men have been convicted already of first degree, like they were, ga they were like, what? What? Some of them had no idea that the guy that had stood in front of them um, was already a convicted murderer. So some of them didn't know. 
maybe all of them didn't know, but they were shocked by that. Let's uh, talk about some stuff that you and I talked about as you were covering the Bosma trial, because it, uh, it came to light during the Babcock trial, and, and, and it's one of the unanswered questions. And, uh, and I want to talk about the letters that apparently yeah. got, got to Christina, New, uh, uh, who is Millard's girlfriend, or one of his girlfriends, I guess, as we found out later on. And, and I think you and I t- briefly touched on this uh, during the Bosma trial, and, and you immediately kind of said, look, that's all I can say about it. I mean, we just yep. can't go there. Uh, again, because you didn't want to compromise the integrity of the trial, I get that. Well, the trial's over, the Babcock trial is over, and uh, the police are saying, well, for all intents and purposes, most of their investigation is over. But we still don't know how those letters got out of Tim Bosma's cell and into her hands. Yeah, well, this is a story that we had to sit on. There was a very small collective group of media. We all knew about this story. We all questioned it. Like, how in God's name did this happen? And uh, we were never allowed to talk about it. But yes, the Toronto lawyer, the first one to be called um, uh, by Millard to represent him, goes by the name of Cocaine Lawyer on his Twitter handle, which tells you pretty much, I think, everything you need to know. But um, it's alleged that he was the one who was a mule getting all these letters. And don't forget, there was about 100 of these letters written by Millard to Nudga. And apparently they were uh, moved out of the jail um, and into the hands of Madeline Burns, mommy, and uh, into the hands of Christina Nugget. We, we should, he, by the way, we should contextualize this by saying that there was a court order saying there should be no contact between them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Not only is it completely illegal for a lawyer to do this, I mean, it's a complete obstruction of justice, but there was absolutely a no contact order between the accused and Christina Nugget. And yet here they were for almost like, it would have been months going back and forth with these letters. And who knew what, when, like, this is the thing. They all just pretended to plead dumb. I didn't know. But in these letters, which were a major part of the case, uh, and without them, we may never have had a conviction, were instructions by Millard to Christina Nubed of what her story should be, certainly about Laura Babcock, but certainly who she should be talking to, what witnesses she needs to get to, what stuff needs to be moved around, because in the letters, and this is a big one that we could never talk about, was a quote-unquote truck-sized hole in the evidence. And he needed her to help him out. And to suggest or think, Bill, that a lawyer was part of that and has never had to answer really any questions about it, you know, it's dumbfounding in this country that something like that can happen. And I can tell you from talking to a lot of lawyers, they're disgusted with it because it makes their industry really look very, very bad. And it could have thrown the whole case. Here's a question, though. And again, I want, I want you to, to rely on, on your, your years of experience covering these things and, and, and your, your journalistic integrity here. Is you, you knew about this, and, and to your credit, of course, you and others who, who wanted to get some answers to this held off on this. Okay, the Bosma trial was finished. You could, still couldn't ask. Now the Babcock trial is finished. And now we find out that they don't even want to pursue this line of questioning anymore, that, that there were some initial questions asked about how those letters got into her hands, but they've yeah. dropped the case. What's going on well, here? Well, exactly. What's the, the upper, the upper uh, law society is not going to comment on this. Well, maybe increased media exposure to this will, will make them rethink that decision. But no, this, this gentleman, as I understand, has gone on to do quite well, posting pictures of him posing beside his Lamborghini. I guess business is good. Um, but, you know, this, these letters were written by Millard, and it was very explicit in his directions in his letters uh, to his little cadet nude guy that she had to destroy these letters. So Millard wrote them and fully told her to get rid of them. And on those letters were the lawyer's name, and that's why it's believed he was the one to get them out. And so, you know, and I'll talk about this on the show of the ring of people who ought to hold their heads in shame and should never sleep well at night for what they knew and what they did. And just because, though, they weren't arrested or charged or sent to jail, that does not make them you know, clean. And they know exactly who I'm talking about. It, they, they, they either obstructed justice, threw out evidence. They all turned a blind eye because being with Dellen, being friends with Dellen Millard had a lot of perks, had a lot of good things. And, you know, hey, we don't want to get involved because it's just too good. We do know that there was some investigation by this. One of the investigating officers into the Boston trial, uh, Detective Sergeant Matt Kavanaugh, I yes. guess, tried to pursue this. Uh, yes. He was told by one of the lawyers 
that uh, this was solicitor client privilege and, and yeah. you know to now apparently there was a court ruling on that that said no there is no privilege no. in existence here yet the I, so all of a sudden I figure well that leaves the door open to continue the investigation but apparently uh, it's not going to and I'm, I'm confounded by this I am, well, I am too and I think a lot of lawyers should be confounded by this and hopefully they'll push and say you know what this isn't cool we don't want guys like this in our business and we want it investigated if it's found bill that he didn't do anything fine so be it my feeling in this case is that a lot of bottom feeders were tossed aside so that the police could get the big fish, being Smitch and Millard. But there are a lot of people. Like, how is it that Christina Nudka got off so easy? You know, she ended up after the Bosma trial, <clears throat> pardon me, pleading out uh, to obstruct justice. Don't forget, she moved the trailer. She held on to important key evidence of a drive that had the men standing near the body of Tim Bosma as it burned. She helped... Uh, get letters uh, from jail. She, she, there's nothing she didn't do. Remember, she wiped off the prints off that trailer at, at Madeline Millard's home, you know. Um, and there's text going back and forth about how it makes her feel all nice inside to hear Millard talking about Laura Babcock being gone. I mean, and she ended up pleading out to obstruct justice and served one day. How is that possible? She's back in Poland now. I think she's going into psychology, if you can believe that. But um, there are a lot of people, the Shane Schlattmans, who, yeah, a black stolen truck with a grieving family begging for their child's return. These guys were all complicit because they all looked the other way, whether it was Andrew Machelski, Matt Hagerman, they all lied to police, and yet their cases all kind of frittered away. We'll never know. Like Madeline Burns, mom, if she did come into contact with those letters, how was it that she was not charged? There are a lot of questions, and so I think this is one of those cases that will be examined for a very long time, and um, it should be. But here's the thing. I'm, uh, we get the fact that in the course of some investigations, yeah, you cut deals with somebody, and you're right to get a bigger fish. And yeah. we've seen that happen time and time again uh, in, in some of these uh, celebrated murder trials. And sometimes you have to wonder, oh, why would you make that sort of a deal when you could have done this, et cetera? And, yeah. and, and hindsight, yeah, like I guess. Carla Hamolka. Well, sure. You know, yeah, exactly. example. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and maybe that's happened here. But per, with, with respect to this lawyer situation and these letters, yeah. Yeah. you know there was no deal made between the lawyer and the authorities and the Crown in a situation like this. And, and all they could do and all they had to do was simply say, you know what, we did investigate this and we found no wrongdoing. But they're not saying that. They're not saying well, they've investigated and found no wrongdoing. They just said they're not investigating it anymore. And that right. could, which begs the question, why aren't you? Well, it's a good question, and, and maybe because the story sat for two and a half years. Look, issues don't tend to get dealt with until they get a lot of, of attention. And because we have not been able to talk about this ever, this person has been able to kind of go on with their life and build a business, and, and the, the law society has been able to kind of move on and shut the door on it. But now that people are finding out about it, you know, there's enough people asking about all the people in in the circle of why the hell they didn't get charged. But then when you think, well, why has there never been any action pursued against the lawyer? Maybe you couldn't charge him, but certainly you could look at disbarring him. Well, lawyers have been disbarred in the past and investigated by the Law Society, and some of them criminally, obviously, for things like fraud of, of, of clients and things of this nature. Uh, mm -hmm. From what we know about this, and I'm not going to try to play storefront lawyer here, yep. apparently if, in fact, a lawyer did do what has been suggested here, take these letters and give them to somebody against a court order, that's a criminal offense. And you got to yes, figure why that, that that should have been investigated. And what we're hearing from authorities right now is, yeah, we asked a few questions, but we just kind of let it drop. Not, yep. not, hey, we investigated it and found out, no, it wasn't him, or no, there was something else involved in this. They just said mm -hmm. we've dropped it. And, and that bothers yep. me. That's a loose end that needs to be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. And it should be. And this is something that we should be asking. And I'm going to talk about it on my show tonight. It's because you've got to really think of the bigger picture in this bill. What if those letters had gotten out successfully and never been found? Had those letters never been found, they never would have led us into the mind of Della Millard to show how manipulative he was, to show how um, you know aggressive he was about you know changing witnesses and having her, Christina Nug, to be an active part in that. It's appalling. It's appalling. And you're right, it should have been looked into because... There is only one way those letters could have gotten out of jail. You can't mail a letter when you're an inmate. 
So how did they get out? I don't know. I don't know what the law society is going to do, but I suspect they're probably going to get a lot more questions now than they had to deal with before. We should mention, I know that you're going to talk about this on the program tonight, but there's another element to this that, that you touched on years ago during the Bosma trial, and, and I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about this, but there's still the issue of the suspicious death of Millard's father. Uh, does that indicate that there's yet another trial to be had here? Yes, there's a trial in March. I suspect that uh, there's absolutely no way Millard is going to plead out because he truly thinks that he's the victim here. Don't forget, it's all about him. He just got caught up in all of this. He was just trying to clean it all up. He's always looked at himself that way, and he's going to appeal. He's still appealing both of his cases. And so there's absolutely no way that trial won't move ahead. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what we get on that, because that was initially ruled a suicide. And then once Bosma's case blew open, that's when the police reopened the investigation into Wayne Millard and then Laura Babcock. Because don't forget, Sean Lerner had gone to the police and said, you've got to look at this. There's another side of the story which may speak to the, to the issue we were just chatting about with the lawyer. There were multiple police uh, units investigating this. There was a Hamilton Police Department and all of their units, and then there was Toronto. And there are suggestions that the Toronto side of things dropped the ball, because remember, when Laura Babcock went missing and Sean Lerner went to the police and said, please look into this, this is what this guy is saying, they didn't investigate it. It was not until Tim Bosma went missing and was killed that they went, okay, we got to start opening this up and looking at this. And so there are questions asked. So maybe the Toronto Police Department didn't think it was important to go after the lawyer angle because they were too busy trying to figure out, okay, we've got this other situation that we're investigating. Again, they let the smaller fish go to get the big fish. Well, there was a, an insinuation that maybe somebody signed off on, on the, the, the Millard, the father's death uh, quite rapidly and just, yeah, it's a suicide. Uh, yep. and, and well, why would you think it was anything other than that, though? Because Dellen was not on the radar for anything at that point. So, um, you know, it could have been just th- that it was a convincing story because he wasn't on the radar for anything at that point. At that point, they were still partying it up and coming up with new ways to find, quote-unquote, meat for their barbecue. Another thing we couldn't talk about in the trial was this insinuation of texts going back and forth between Smitch saying, hey, it works time to get more meat for the barbecue. So the the belief is that Laura Babcock had been burned, and they wanted to do it again. And the next meat was Tim Bosma. And that kind of grotesque, sinister uh, language really speaks to who these two guys are. And the circle of friends, again, who should hang their head in shame. Yeah, well, and that, and of course, in the legal community as well, and you know, there's a matter of integrity in the in the legal process. And when there's an insinuation that a lawyer may have done something uh, underhanded here, and and again, I know he denies it. I get that. Uh, I I think further questions need to be asked, and I think there needs to be a further investigation into this. I know you're going to talk about this uh, eight o'clock tonight. Of course, uh, check it out here mm-hmm. on CHML on point with Alex Pearson. Always a pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much for this Bill, today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Veterans Affairs and some of the things that have been going on. It's been a contentious issue for years, uh, both with the previous government and now with this one, because of some of the promises that were made during the election campaign a couple of years ago. A change in the way that Veterans Affairs manages their cases is prompting some backlash from the people that they serve, those being the veterans, the wounded veterans themselves. Veterans advocates fear that a new pilot program that's going to be extended right now could actually be detrimental to many of those wounded veterans. Joining us to talk about this is Michael Blaze, who is the president and founder of Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Mike, good to have you on the program. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Uh, A couple of things I want to talk about, but let's first of all get into this guided support program. Now, this is not a new idea. This was launched as a pilot program, and it looks like the government's going to expand this and, uh, and make it, uh, I guess, for the lack of a better expression, a permanent program. Maybe talk to us about how you see this rolling out and, and the impact that it's had. Well, you know, the impact it's had so far today has been marginal, frankly. You know, I mean, we've had a lot of talk on guiding people through and how this is supposed to work. But, you know, from my feedback, uh, it really hasn't been that productive yet. Now, that's not saying that this, this doesn't have potential, which it does, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wary, frankly. You know, we have, to, we have to make sure that these programs are complete and comprehensive and very often with Veterans Affairs. That's not the way it rolls out. 
So here's the deal, and I, I'm just going to try to give a thumbnail sketch on this. Yep. Uh, the guided support program essentially means that uh, the people that are in need, veterans that are in need, will also give, be assigned a caseworker. And this is somebody who usually has a degree in social work and, and can guide them through and kind of help them with support through through the, the rough times. But as, as the program indicates, though, that, that as they start to improve, as that veteran starts to improve, and I don't know exactly who makes that determination, all of a sudden they're going to be moved into a different phase of the program uh, where they lose their caseworker in many instances, uh, they, it's, and, and uh, they become part of a wider body that, that will kind of look after them or stay in touch with them from time to time. But it's not the same level of care. And what I've heard is that a number of veterans that have gone through that program in that phase of it, Mike, end up uh, being disenchanted and saying, I need more help, but now I'm not getting it. It's been very difficult. Uh, and they feel as if they're falling through the cracks. Is, is that a fair assessment? It is. It is. You know, and, uh, you know, I mean, the reality is, you know, that uh, a lot of them are falling through the cracks because of this and uh, other reasons. But this is part of it. You know, I mean, the object was to provide comprehensive uh, guidance through this process. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, this is what was needed. This is an issue that we fought for. This is an issue where, you know, so many young men and women were going through a process where, like you say, getting lost in the cracks. They had serious uh, wounds that they were dealing with, often uh, that serious to the point that we didn't really know how serious it was yet. We were finding this out as, as time progressed. And then, you know, you, you, you have a, a time when everything's going good, where you're working, where you have that support, and they think all of a sudden that you're well. Oh, that's it. You're good enough. You can handle this on your own. That's not true. You were doing well because the program was working, because you had this assistant level of care. And then because of an arbitrary decision, you know, made at Veterans Affairs, oh, he's doing better or she's doing better, uh, they, they discontinued that level. And, you know, that veteran's still at a point where he needs that support, where she needs that support. And when they prematurely withdraw it, there are consequences, you know, sometimes consequences to to the point that everything that we've attained to that point of time is, is suddenly gone and we're starting from scratch again. Well, therein lies the problem. And, and the mandate, is, as outlined by the, uh, the Veterans Affairs Minister, Seamus O'Regan, uh, says that the government supports the implementation of this guided support pilot program committed to treating veterans with the utmost care, compassion, and respect. Now, that sounds great. That's, that's the intent, okay? But what's supposed to happen here is uh, case management services works with veterans with complex needs and their families to achieve what they say are mutually agreed upon yeah. goals through a collaborative process. In other words, we want you to be able to do this, to be able to handle this, etc. Who makes the determination, Mike, that, that, that they've reached that level where they don't need that level of help anymore? Well, that's, that's the point, right? You know, I mean, we identify them when they do need help. Uh, we apply resources to that level, uh, you know, to bring them through a period of time. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, who decides uh, that, that, well, you know, is it the department? Is it collaborative between the veteran and the and the caseworker, as the way it should be, or is it, uh, you know, as I suspect, a, a cash-driven decision wherein there will be a certain amount of time that they will allocate to each, uh, each veteran, and after that they'll do a review, and 99% of the time the, uh, the support will end at the end of that review. Now, I know, let's talk numbers, because governments love to talk numbers. Uh, because when, when there was some investigative reporting done on this, it was indicated that only about five veterans had actually come forward to try to say that the system wasn't working properly. And, and you know, that gave the government cause to say, well, see, it's, there's always going to be some people that aren't pleased with this. Then we found out later on that a number of the people we refused to comment because they're concerned about reprisals, that, hey, if I speak up about the system, I'm going to get a worse situation than I'm in right now. Uh, that speaks to me that there's, a, there's a, a real concern here from veterans, but at the same time, they don't want to get cut off altogether because, I mean, they've been down that road before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, that's one of the reasons Canadian veterans exist, because veterans were terrified to come forward and speak to the uh, travail that they were dealing with from Veterans Affairs Canada because of retribution because they feared their, you know, their benefits would be cut off or they'd be sent to another doctor and then their benefits would be cut off, you know. So, I mean, that's a valid, valid, uh, a valid, um, you know, I mean, argument to, to, to counter. However, you know, I mean, uh, the numbers, if only, you know, they say five coming forward, well, 
you know, I mean, that's fine and dandy, but the reality is I'm sure that, you know, like every program they roll out, it's in great need of improvements as we move forward. You know, it seems with Veterans Affairs Canada that the the headline without the substance is as this as is this one. You know, eventually there'll be a bunch of problems that will manifest through the program time that we will have to deal with and amend and make uh, better before this program actually works. And you know, I mean, here when people come forward, you know, they shouldn't be dismissed because there's only five of them. The department should be damn well listening to them. And incorporating the, uh, you know, if they brought forward valid complaints, fix them. Fix them so the next veteran doesn't have to go through this problem. Here's the thing that I find frustrating, and it's a definition. They say that the people are going to be moved off this program and, and into the, to the, to the, the wider program where just, they don't get a caseworker anymore. Uh, they're going to be the ones who have, quote-unquote, moderate needs. What do, you, what do they mean by moderate needs? Is that I, I mean, does severe needs mean you're on suicide watch and anybody other than that is moderate? I, I, I don't get, well, their, I don't get the classification moderate. here, Mike. Well, I can help you here. I'm considerate moderate, even though despite the fact that I'm on a mobility scooter, I can't stand for more than 10 minutes. I'm confined to my house 23 hours out of 24. That's what they consider moderate. You know, and that in itself is kind of disgusting because what they consider moderate still needs a great deal of help. That, that, that the physical and mental um, trauma that they've sustained as a consequence of their service to this nation has left them in serious, not well, perhaps financial discord, but definitely physical discord, wherein they're seriously disabled, even though they say it's moderate, and they need help. And, and you know, I mean, this is, the, you know, they bring in people, they have the guy go take you through process and stuff, and then very often, as it was in my era, they abandon you. They just let you go. And this is exactly what I fear will happen, and then why I fear this will eventually turn into a headline without substance, in the sense that, you know, yeah, you'll get a case manager, you'll get someone to help you in the first couple of months when you're getting out, just like it was in the past. And, you know, they may extend that a little bit under this new program, you know. But, but, but at the end of the day, if they're just going to cast you adrift and not follow up, I see some very serious problems on the way this is going to develop. Well, in the same context of talking about numbers, let's do that, because I know that, uh, that the government, uh, the, the, the Trudeau government did promise to hire more so that there would be a better ratio of, of caseworkers for veterans. And, and I know they have done some hiring on that. But the concern here is that while those numbers may have grown, so have the number of veterans who have come forward and say we need help. And that's a good thing. That's, that means instead of simply saying there's no hope for us, they have come forward. They've talked about this, and, and we need those people to come forward to try to get the assistance they need. But that, that jigs the numbers on the other side. And, and what some veterans are telling me, Mike, and I don't know if you've heard this, is that this, this second layer that they've set up here where all of a sudden you're going to be you know, categorized as moderate needs is really to maintain that 25 uh, veterans to one caseworker ratio. In other words, they're going to bump those people off the list, so they, that, that number will still look good, but they're not sure about the level of care they're going to get at that other level. Well, you know, that's very, very potential, I think. You know, I mean, but the reality is, you know, I'm in the past government, strictly uh, strip veterans affairs. You know, they've hired 400 people. they still got to hire some more people because just to uh, catch up. And you're right, you know, we have a outreach that we're very effective at, I feel, of uh, reaching out to veterans, to telling them to come forward, to not suffer alone, to get the help that they need. And, you know, when you have a backlog of 29,000 people, uh, you know, that, that, that's testament to our efforts that uh, people are listening. They're, they are coming forward. They're not dealing with this mental or physical pain by themselves anymore, and they're coming forward to get the help they need. You know, but, uh, you know, I mean, we always get this numbers, 25 to 1. Well, we're not there yet, right? You know, and we're not going to be there for a while. And it really doesn't matter on this level because uh, they're, 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 they're under understaffed, period. And it, all programs are suffering as a consequence. And until they hire another couple hundred people, until they have people to take care of this program, until they have people to educate, you know, the cases as they come forward so we don't have 29,000 people backed up, uh, until we have that case ratio of 25 to 1, there will continue and remain to be serious problems within the Department of Veterans Affairs Canada as far as the level of care that they're providing to our, our valiant. 
There is one individual uh, among those five that did speak up, Don Leonardo, uh, who uh, was one of the veterans who uh, was uh, courageous enough to talk about some of the shortcomings of this program. And he's he's a case in point uh, to what we're talking about here, Mike. He was one of those people that was reclassified as uh, as moderate needs. Uh, so he lost his caseworker, and, and he's now dealing with what they call a service agent, and that ratio is much higher than 1 to 25 to 1. Uh, and he has had, a, as he says, a, a marked deterioration in his health over the last little while uh, and has been applying to get back into the program with a caseworker. And, and so far, he's getting nowhere on this. So this idea that, hey, if we see that things are, are going south on you, that we'll bring you back in and, and get you a caseworker, it hasn't happened to him. Uh, and, and he's concerned that, well, how many other people are in his situation that are afraid to speak up? Yeah, I know Don, as a matter of fact. He's, uh, you know, he has his own organization. I've mm-hmm. met him in Ottawa many times. He's a good advocate. And, you know, he, he makes a good point. You know, if he is being denied, if he is going through trouble, if he is an advocate, who they know is an advocate, is getting dorked around, you know, through process, what chance do you have? I mean, this, this defines the problem. You know that uh, that 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 everyone is 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 going to be you know potentially cut off without without recourse, and this is the downside. You know, it's always the way. Well, you have the ability to appeal. You have the ability through redress. You have the ability to whine like hell if you want, but that doesn't really make a difference because you know, look at Don. They're not letting him back on. They're they're they're, they're maintaining a status as well. Well, we did this for you. Now get on with your life. Well, that's not good enough for people who have sustained mental trauma. They're going to need help if you want them to to reintegrate. If you want them to you know go to work and all the other things that they promote under the the guise of wellness. You know, well, you're going to have to provide that support until forever, most likely in many cases, because that wound just doesn't go away. You know, I mean, uh, it'll fester in a couple of years. It will come back. There will be help. Or you'll, you know, a lot of guys have a great difficulty in concentrating and, and going to school and and and, crea- and performing all these things that they want us to do in order to reintegrate. You know, so there's got to be a level of understanding at Veterans Affairs Canada and compassion. And a perfect example is Don's case, because I know him well. He's not well. He should have been, if he says that there's a deterioration in his, in his, in his standard or in his quality of life, you know, it should be redressed right away. Not uh, thrown off into this thing where, well, let a client service agent take care of him. He doesn't need a case manager. His problems are not that severe. And that's a prevailing attitude in Veterans Affairs Canada, where where myself, I don't have a case manager. I just told you how how, how, how disabled Mm -hmm. I am. I don't think I've ever had one. I've always had a client service agent. And in the past, it's been because of uh, shortages of manpower. At least that's what I've been told. You know, so the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, if they're going to come forward with, with headlines to uh, make the Canadian people think that everything's uh, la-la land in, in, in Veteransville, well, they better start following through and making sure that that headline's a real headline and not like it has been so often as in the past, the headline without substance. Mike, keep fighting the good fight, and we'll uh, always give you a platform to talk about these issues. I'm glad you had time to be with us today. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Big announcement tomorrow, supposedly, on the Pension Act. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I've got some concerns about that, and I know you do, too. Maybe they'll surprise us, though. Who knows? (laughs) I'm hoping. (laughs) Thanks again, Mike. Okay, thank you. Michael Blaze, president and founder of the Canadians Veterans Advocacy Group. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I'm sure one of the highlights of your Christmas season every year is uh, is watching the uh, year-end political interviews that happen. Uh, the prime ministers and opposition leaders and just about everybody else uh, gets interviewed. And it was, you know, how was the year for you? What were your accomplishments? Yada, 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 yada. And uh, it's, it's happening on all the networks. They all do those. But uh, there's some interesting comments uh, on... Uh, the Global News television show uh, called The West Block, which is hosted by Vashi Capellos uh, from Global News, uh, and it talked to a couple of individuals. Uh, one was uh, the newly minted NDP leader, uh, Jirbeet Singh, and, and he made some comments that I want to talk about in a second. But the one that made the headlines were uh, was an interview with Bardish Jagger, who is uh, the Minister of Small Business and Tourism, and she's also the government house leader for the uh, Trudeau government. And uh, she admitted uh, during her conversation with Vashi that maybe the government should have done their homework before they moved ahead with the small business tax reform package that made so many headlines. And 
Uh, that may well be the the comment that gets the uh, understatement of the year award, given some of the things that have happened since then. To talk about that and the implications, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Cheryl Collier, who is an associate professor of political science at uh, the University of Windsor. Cheryl, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. That's great to be here. Uh, this is, uh, for those that love politics, uh, I guess a great time of year because you get to hear some of these comments and, and, and the politicians' assessment of, of what's gone on. Uh, maybe not such a big thing for a lot of other folks, but I, I just revel in this stuff. I, I'm a bit of a political junkie, and obviously as, as a political science professor, you pay attention to these things. Uh, but invariably, these are people all, I think, are, are I don't want to use the word rehearse, but let's put it this way. They're, they're well vetted with talking points, I guess, from the party leaders before they go on these shows? Mm-hmm. Yes, usually they are, yes. Just to make sure that they don't go down the wrong road and that they get the main points that the government wants to get out to the public? That's correct. Although, uh, you know, if there's different levels of control. Um, I think notably the uh, Stephen Harper government, to its credit, was very good at making sure that everybody was on script about just about everything. Um, the PMO would, would, was pretty, uh, uh, pretty strict in, in uh, making sure talking points were, uh, were well communicated. Um, I understand the Liberal government has taken some of that, but at the same time has allowed its minist- his ministers, anyways, to uh, have a little bit more freedom. Uh, uh, he, was, he was quite actually uh, proud of the fact that uh, he was going to rely more on ministerial government. Um, so so, you know, that might make for the odd uh, moment in time, I guess, where a minister could go a little off script. And, uh, and of course, the problem with that is that it can cause your, your government a little bit more of, a, uh, uh, of an issue uh, making mountains out of molehills or reigniting issues they thought they'd put to bed uh, because they, uh, somebody might say something a little bit off, off of the, uh, the main party line. Well, would you classify uh, the minister's comments, uh, Minister Chagger's comments, in in that regard, uh, suggesting that maybe the government didn't do their homework on this issue? Is 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 that a government policy to try to backtrack and say, "Hey, we blew it," or or was this the minister speaking out of turn? Yeah, I don't think this was the government policy. I think the minister may have gone a tiny bit of, away from the script. Um, and, uh, you know, it's no surprise or no secret, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, in your intro, that this is, uh, this has been a problem, this, the small business tax change, uh, rollout. Um, uh, one big problem, I think, for the Liberals that they didn't really grasp until they had done, uh, some of their, uh, the, the rollout of it and, and, uh, and tried to get feedback from people in some town halls. Um, and of course, then you had people like doctors, uh, groups, uh, uh, you know, family farm groups, and, and of course, the opposition parties kind of chiming in and, and being quite critical. Um, so I, I, I don't think that that's something that people were, uh, surprised by that, 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 uh, that, these initial changes came out and then there was feedback and then there was some a little bit of, of a pullback on some of the changes um, and notably um, of course the uh, uh, the uh, decision to um, uh, you know uh, actually make the small business tax uh, uh, rate actually go down a little bit further than the liberals had initially expected was seen by some people as as being a reaction to some of this backlash um, without saying it was a reaction to the backlash and I think that's that's the fine line here is that the government will admit some uh, recognition of listening to people and being open to that, but they don't want to say that they, they didn't anticipate uh, problems down the road because that looks like they're incompetent. So it's, 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 uh, it is a fine line, and I think uh, Minister Chagger may have a little bit crept over the line by saying that they should have done a little bit more of the due diligence ahead of time. Um, and I think that's where we're, we're kind of uh, jumping on this uh, story today. Exactly. Governments always want you to think that the glass is half full, right? I mean, uh, you know, we, we, oh, we want to listen. Okay. I, but, and I know they, they, on the record, have always said that, well, you know, we weren't surprised by the pushback on this. But I, I got the sense that they were. They didn't anticipate that it was going to be as loud and, and as relentless as it was. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right on that. Um, and uh, the talking points definitely on this were uh, were ones they didn't anticipate. The, the, you know, you think about tax changes and you and changing and closing loopholes. You and 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 the narrative usually, and I think this was the narrative of the Liberals, was that there's people cheating the the uh, the government out there, and that we're going to just get those cheats and we're going to save money and we're going to you know we're going to do something that other governments somehow missed or or you know we're going to fix everything um when that narrative changes to we're attacking small business people that are uh that are trying their best to grow the economy and that are just doing their jobs and that are trying to you know uh make uh industries work well for them and 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 the two groups that i mentioned before the doctors groups and and the family farm uh groups these are you know hard-working people that have uh, have already had uh, a tough time, we would suggest, and, and trying to kind of make business work. Um, doctors are limited, um, obviously, by the, the Canada Health Act and, and what they can and can't charge. And so they're, they're making their businesses work. And if, if that's made more difficult, then there's going to be problems and that's going to blow back, obviously, on some tax changes and probably at the provincial level. So that was maybe something that they didn't think about. Uh, and of course, the, 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 the picture of the family farm struggling that's that's one that we've we've heard for a while uh and uh and it's it's that narrative i think people see as as being um uh you know of hard-working people why would you attract attack those people and i think when uh particularly the conservatives were able to hear these groups and and kind of make that case this was something that the liberals were i think a bit surprised by so this was where things started to go off the rails um and then you're doing something you're changing a tax code that not a lot of people understand you yourself when you're trying to roll this out don't have a clear message on it and that's a problem too and remember this was started um i guess fairly early in the first term maybe not the best idea uh to to have uh have rolled it out as quickly as they did um without maybe thinking about some of these uh these kind of core messaging issues um and of, of course that came back to bite them but when they started talking about tax reform, uh, they seem to be doing it in, 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 in such general terms that I, I think you're absolutely right, Cheryl. Most of us conjured up this idea of, oh, yeah, these are, you know, they're going after those people with those offshore accounts that don't pay any tax. You know, these millionaires or billionaires, I guess in some cases, that we hear stories about. And it's about time they caught up with them. And But the focus in the legislation, as you've articulated, seemed to be on small business. And the insinuation was that those small business people are the ones that were cheating the system out of billions and billions of dollars. And, and I, I guess, you know, why wouldn't there be a pushback on something like that? It was it, some, all of a sudden they turned their, you know, their weaponry against small business as opposed to the, the fat cats that we think have always been able to get away with this. And, uh, of course, there was going to be anger, not just from those people that were affected, but by those people that said, hey, why are you picking on them? It's like, you know, start stopping a fight in the schoolyard and say, what are you picking on that guy for? Yeah, exactly. And I think you've articulated that very well. And I think that's, some of the frustration, because we know that some of the uh, of, uh, the caucus members in the Liberal Party were really upset because they couldn't even explain this to their. Well, you know what's funny about this? What brought it to my attention were actually a couple of Liberal backbenchers who contacted mm-hmm. my office and said, "You know what's going on here?" Because they started <laughs> hearing from their constituents about it. And they were probably, uh, you know, uh, quite frustrated that they weren't able to kind of uh, make that uh, that case to the party. And this is something that happens when a party thinks it knows what it's doing and it has its ministers in place. And if you're backbench member, you know, in a large uh, large caucus, it's it's hard sometimes to get that messaging through. But you're right. Uh, I think they were right. Um, and this is they've basically given a gift to the conservatives at a time where they have a new leader trying to kind of get his feet uh, firmly planted. And, and this is something, if we don't hear about this in the in the election in 2019, I'll be way surprised. Well, let's face it, I think the buzzword in 2019 is going to be elitist, because uh, that was yeah. certainly the narrative that the opposition parties tried to portray. And, and, and the Liberals fell right into the trap, really. Yeah. And, and you know, you think about the fact that the, the finance minister himself is quite elite, uh, you know, uh, and and we've, we've focused a lot on him particularly in his inability to, I think, relate to small business people. Um, and that 
also is a narrative that the that the government did not want to uh, to get out there. Uh, you know, kind of that focus on him personally, and and this is again something that the Conservatives have done a really good job at bringing up in in question period and and uh, to the media uh, at every turn. Cheryl, where are the the, the level headed folks in these rooms when these decisions are made? And I'm I'm not just talking about the Liberals because this is a, an ongoing narrative that we hear of whoever is in government, whether it's federal or provincial. Is it, you wonder where's that, that person who's going to say, have you guys thought this out? Before you open the door there and make this announcement, have you really thought about the implications and what it's going to do And your will? Every corner of this, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it? Because I, I get the sense oftentimes that that doesn't happen in some of these meetings. And I actually, I wrote a commentary about it when, when the announcement was made. I said, the people I almost feel sorry for are those liberal backbenchers you were just talking about, because they took a lot of the heat for this, and it wasn't their decision. They just sat there and were told what was going to happen. Yeah, and that's what happens when you're you're a member of the government, and you yeah you're you don't you're not in that inner circle. You are told this is our this is the line, and go sell it. Um, and then when you hear that backlash from your own constituents, and you don't really have a good narrative to uh, to actually you know combat that uh, that backlash, then that's definitely you're right. That's a problem. You know, um, it, tax changes are difficult. Uh, if you think about the last kind of major tax changes we saw. Uh, they, they happened under the Mulroney government, um, and, uh, you know, there were changes to tax brackets, etc. Um, and you could argue that the Mulroney government suffered some backlash on some of, uh, some of the changes. Uh, we had the GST came into place afterwards, um, and, you know, this was a, an increase in tax. Uh, that was uh, done on the consumption side. I think that's something that people had an easier time understanding, although, you know, I don't know a government now that's going to go down the road of incre- uh, introducing any new tax, really, uh, because that seems to be the death knell for uh, for a government. So, uh, you know, when you want to do these kinds of tax changes, I think the Liberals probably found it way more difficult um, when they looked at what they wanted to do and they think about who they're going to really upset. And uh, maybe they, you know, well, obviously they didn't do their due diligence on thinking about these uh, tax changes, but somebody must have come to them and said, okay, these, are, these changes are going to cause you the least amount of headaches, so why don't you move forward here? You'll be able to show these, these, uh, you know, these savings, and, and you'll be fulfilling a campaign promise. But obviously, they they didn't think deeper about uh, the political implications. And you know, sometimes all the best work you do, you, you do miss some of these things. And uh, it, you know, it is a new government. I guess you get, and they're not super new, I know, but they. Uh, you know, they still have lots to learn. And uh, when you come off like you know everything from the get-go, I think that doesn't leave you a lot of room when you do have that learning. Um, and I think this is where you're finding the backbench MPs and uh, Mr. Minister Jagger uh, coming out and, and admitting that they, they probably did make a mistake here. But, but timing is everything in politics, as the old saying goes. And and I'm wondering who was the the voice of reason, in, you know, those cabinet discussions said, look, at, uh, you guys had not need to know the lay of the land, all right? Uh, they're dealing with small business are dealing with higher utility rates. Oh, and by the way, in Ontario, they're raising the minimum wage, and there's a big kerfuffle about that. So they're not in mm-hmm. a very good mood to begin with. So you really want to do this now? And and yeah. Yeah, and, and Morneau's statement always was, this is the right thing to do. Yes, we're going to move forward on this. And, and, and that really, I guess, really just got people's backs up even more. Yeah, and I think there's a, an inability for the client, you know, some of that to accept the uh, the mistake and the client, and to do that climb down from your position, especially if you come out as this is the right thing to do, and then this is your your major kind of of uh, of uh, platform issue in in the finance area. Um, you think about you know, finance minister. Really, this is his big uh, issue, his big policy uh, uh, announcement. And it takes a lot. It takes a big person and a very skilled minister, I would suggest, to be able to do, uh, uh, to kind of skillfully kind of uh, work around some of these criticisms and then come out still smelling like you knew what you were doing right off the bat. And we're, we're seeing a little bit of the clunkiness of a new minister not being able to do that. Maybe too much uh, of the prime minister allowing the minister to have too much control on this. And I, I don't want to blame completely Bill Morneau because this is a government decision, but I don't think his, uh, you know, not the fact that he's a novice hasn't helped at all. Uh, and if this was maybe a second-term government, we might have seen a little bit better handling of this issue. And perhaps this wasn't the uh, the issue they, they should have tackled in their first term. It's I'm not suggesting that they're going to get a second term, but 
it's sometimes if you know what's going on uh, a little bit more and you have seasoned ministers, you're, uh, it's, it's easier to kind of maneuver some of these, um, uh, these issues when they pop up. Because let's be honest, we can't know everything. A government can't know everything. Um, they try. Um, and sure, perfect information is, is great. But uh, we don't usually have it. Uh, that's, you know, rational kind of policymaking. Uh, I wish we all had uh, perfect information all the time. But when you find you don't, then it's, it's your political skill uh, and how you're able to maneuver around it. And we're seeing some clunkiness, I think, with the government now and their ability to m- maneuver. I've got a couple of minutes left here. Notwithstanding that clunkiness, uh, as, as we look at the numbers at the end of the year, the Liberals still have a significant lead in, in most of the, the polling that's been, uh, national polling anyway. Uh, and mm-hmm. the opposition parties both had new leaders this year, Andrew Scheer for the Conservatives and Jagmeet Singh for the NDP. Uh, mm-hmm. There was no bump, uh, which there usually is when, when a new leader comes in. Uh, Sheer just didn't seem to have that pizzazz. I know he's, I think, the most Googled name uh, in Canadian politics this year, but uh, but it doesn't it doesn't translate into a bump for his party. Singh, I just went through a number of by-elections. They had a few of those last week, of course, and the NDP uh, did not fare well. Uh, and and the big buzz that the NDP was hoping to get out of Singh as, as leader hasn't really happened. And I guess the operative word is that it hasn't happened yet for either one of those two. But mm-hmm. were you surprised by that, Cheryl? Not completely. Both of them were not very well known um, outside of the, the kind of the core supporters of those parties. And we don't have a lot of core supporters in, in Canada, so they didn't really have national profiles. Um, even in Ontario, actually, Jagmeet Singh uh, wasn't really a well-known Ontario minister, uh, or, well, maybe wouldn't have been a minister, but he he didn't have uh, kind of a high profile, I don't think, in the provincial government. Andrew Scheer was the uh, uh, speaker, former speaker of the, of the House, um, so if you followed uh, federal politics, you would have had some exposure to him, but uh, in a race that was dominated by, uh, you know, uh, former Dragon's Den uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, TV personality, uh, he, he really didn't get a lot of press, um, and I think he was a surprise winner. So usually when you have a, um, uh, it's a, a, a leadership uh, campaign, that's where you can kind of get a little bit of that bump, that traction. I don't think either of them really were able to capitalize on that. They, there wasn't as much attention to those two leadership races as, uh, as you normally would. Um, maybe that's because we were still interested in kind of uh, uh, following the kind of the, the Trudeau mania, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, honeymoon period, which tended to last, well, if you compare it to other new governments, lasted a lot longer than uh, that honeymoon kind of bump that you get uh, post-election uh, than we've seen with a lot of other governments. Um, and maybe that we that neither of the leaders really had that national kind of media exposure beforehand. So they've got lots of work to do for uh, to kind of connect with Canadians. Um, you know, we hear that at least Jagmeet Singh is supposed to have that ability, somewhat Trudeau-esque, of, uh, of being able to connect with people, um, you know, very positive, that sort of thing. But he hasn't had a lot of exposure, a lot of media attention. He doesn't have a seat in the House of Commons. That's going to hurt him. Um, and uh, Andrew Scheer, for all of his you know, uh, good qualities. I think he's a solid leader, young, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you would suggest that he is really vibrant or uh, able to kind of, you know, garner a lot of excitement, or at least not yet. And so that's, uh, he's more kind of a steady hand uh, leadership choice. Um, and uh, we'll have to see whether or not he is able to kind of, of uh, look like a good alternative uh, to to Trudeau, uh, you know, in 2019, but he's got a long way to go again to, for people to, to kind of know who, who he is and what he's all about. It's probably why he's the most Googled person, because people are like, oh, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, well, they both clearly yeah. a lot of work to do in 2018. Cheryl, we've got to break it off at this point. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, great talking with you again. You as well. You have a great day. You too. Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.